when it comes to our faith, we don't realize that we do this, but a lot of times we measure faith in different amounts. We think of terms of people who have a lot of faith and people that have little faith. And last week we began a series called Seven Signs where we looked at John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, when he wrote his book, his gospel, the Gospel of John. And this document, this document is, he was written so that you would have faith or so that you would believe. That was what John said. I've written this so that you would have faith and that you would believe. Now over the course of the seven weeks, we will see that John put his faith in Jesus, not because of faith, but because of what he saw, because of what he heard, the evidence that was in front of him. And John lays out this compelling case of evidence of what he's seen that led him to conclude that Jesus is who Jesus claimed to be, the Son of God. Now, for many of us, we felt like at times our faith was based maybe a little more on hope than confidence from evidence that we have. But John, who saw Jesus with his own eyes, who touched Jesus with his own hands and witnessed firsthand the miracles and the miraculous signs of Jesus, wants you to know that there is ample evidence to pair with your somewhat blind faith. And when you combine that with the revelation of the Holy Spirit, well, you have every reason to have confidence in your faith. Have you ever met somebody who has an incredible amount of confidence, or you would look at them and you would say they have such strong faith despite the things that happen around them. And maybe they've come out the other side of an abusive marriage, or, or maybe they lost a child way too young, or, or maybe they lost their job, lost their house, their, their life seemed to fall and crumble around them. And yet despite all of the things around them, they, they, their confidence in God just seems like it's unshakable. Despite what would crush many of us, they still have peace. They still have this joy. They still have this, 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 this just faith in all of it. Their, it, their faith just seems to be unshaken. Sometimes you even wonder, are, are they actually, are they in denial? But they're not. They just turn to God despite what they, despite what they see around them. And, and honestly, their story is, is quite inspiring. And when you hear your story, you can't help but put yourself in their shoes and ask, how would I respond in the middle of that if that happened to me? Or how strong would I be? Or, or what would happen to my faith in God if I've had to face what they faced? Famous scientist Francis Collins tells this story in his book, The Language of God. And, and I, if I spoke about Francis Collins a, a number of, a number of uh, months ago about a, a sermon that I did called Can Science and God Coexist? Collins is known as the director of the Human Genome Project in the U.S. where they've made some groundbreaking discoveries about genes and how they interact with some major diseases. In other words, he's smarter than you, smarter than me. In his book, he tells of a very pivotal time in his life where he was a physician in North Carolina. That, that was, he was doing his rounds and, and he's working with people that are kind of on their, their last days. They're, they're, people are dying all around him. And he noticed that there was a number of people that he treated that had this unshakable faith. And he wondered, why are these people not shaking their fists at God and demanding that their families stop all this talk about a loving and benevolent superpower? And after all, 
the diseases that he was watching them die of weren't things that they caused or brought on themselves. They did nothing to deserve them. And that's when an older patient, this lady, suffering from an untreatable disease, asked Collins a question that would kind of shake him to the core. She, she kind of mentioned, she, she had talked about Jesus and she talked about her hope of heaven. But then she said to him one day, one day, Dr. Collins, what do you believe? And he said, my, I felt my face flush as I stammered out the words, I'm not really sure. And, and Collins in that moment was, he was kind of in the dark and he kind of knew, he began to question his own integrity as a scientist and realized that rather than, that rather than the fact that he'd considered all the evidence in this, in, coming to the, a rational conclusion about one of life's greatest questions, he says this, he was engaged in willful blindness in something that could only be described as arrogance. He says, suddenly all my arguments seemed very thin, and I had the sensation that the ice under my feet was cracking. And so Collins begins this journey of looking for the evidence. Because up to that point, as he said, he was willfully blinded. In other words, the evidence, or the, the evidence for the existence of Jesus was out there, but he never really was looking for it. And so when he began to search, he discovered that there was overwhelming evidence for the claims of Jesus. In fact, when he set his arrogance and his willful blindness aside, he discovered that his work with genetics and science didn't actually disprove the existence of God. It actually supported it. As a result, Francis Collins would submit his life fully to Jesus, and he continues to to this day. In the same way, Lee Strobel did the same thing. There's a very famous book that, that spawned uh, Bible studies and video series and even a motion picture called The Case for Christ. And in The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel, who is this legal analyst for the Chicago Tribune newspaper. And so when his wife all of a sudden starts going to church and attending a local church, he's kind of he's kind of upset about the whole thing. He's upset that his wife would put her faith in something that he saw as unintelligent and baseless. So he uses his, 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 his background in, in law and his background in journalism, and he puts them to work to disprove the existence of Jesus. And so he begins this journey, much like Francis Collins, where he wants to disprove the existence of God, and he's thinking, I'll show my wife. What he never expected was the more he dug, the more he discovered that Jesus wasn't just a myth or a, a fairy tale, that there was evidence for the historical person of Jesus, which most science, scientists will tell you there, there was a historical person of Jesus. But he also came to the conclusion that this man who claimed to be God in human form, who died on a cross, who was crucified by the Roman government, actually arose again on the third day actually came back to the followers and started a movement that would change the world. Strobel says, It was the evidence from science and history that prompted me to abandon my atheism and become a Christian. The Apostle, Paul, the Apostle John would tell you the same thing. I, I didn't come to faith because someone just told me to believe. The same goes with Matthew, with Peter, with Bartholomew. They came to faith, but it was a process. They came to faith faith based on the evidence that was set out before them. 
And so John, knowing that you and I would struggle with putting our faith in faith one day, documents his gospel, and he encourages you with the, with the help and the guidance of the Holy Spirit to help you read through his gospel. He wants you to consider his testimony of what he saw and what he heard. 1 John 1.1 1, 1 says, We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard, whom we have seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. Again, John wants you to know, my, my testimony is firsthand. I'm not passing down to you like what my father told me and his father told him. No, 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 it's more than that. And there wasn't just me, there was many, many other people. We saw him, we touched him. With our own hands, we touched him. Verse two, the one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the father and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you that we, we ourselves have actually seen and heard. John would say to you uh, that he'd say, God was right in front of me. I, I don't know why he chose me. I mean, I'm, I'm just a simple fisherman. I mean, as a boy, I grew up a good Jewish boy. I believed in God, but God always seemed to be a little bit impersonal at times. But then all of a sudden he shows up right in front of me. And, and he, now he's my rabbi. He's my teacher. He's my friend. And I'm just telling you, this is what I saw. And so like we talked about last week, John is at the end of his life and he documents some of his experiences. He puts pen to paper and he writes out his gospel. In fact, there's reason to believe that perhaps maybe someone else wrote the words for John because he was at the end of his life. He was an older man. Maybe he was losing his sight. But we also know that he was an uneducated fisherman and we get gospel, the gospel of John, the original was written in Greek. And it's likely that John, being a Jewish, Jewish man, didn't know Greek. And so it's entirely possible that someone else wrote this story down as he dictated. But John doesn't want you to know just what happened. He wants you to know why it happened. He wants something to happen to you. The same thing that happened to him. He wants it to happen to you based on his testimony. He said, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of, this, of the, his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But there, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you will have life in his name. This is, this is basically his thesis right here. This is at the end of his gospel. He says, Jesus did many things, and he did so many more things I could have recorded, but based on these seven signs, these seven signs made me believe and my hope is that in the same way that I believe, that you will consider them and you will believe as well. And if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that saves us from all sin, that he is the Son of God, then you will have life in his name. Or in other words, eternal life. And John knew this. He knew this. He knew that eternal life doesn't start right when you die. Eternal life starts the moment that you put your trust and your faith in Jesus. It doesn't just start in the afterlife, but you live, you, eternal life starts here on earth as well, and it will transform you. Today we're going to look at the second sign. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43. 
And you might have this heading in this, in this spot. You might have a heading over it that says, Jesus heals an officer's son or, or the healing of a nobleman's son or a government official's son. One of those things. So before we jump in, let's just recap a little bit quickly. Last week, Jesus goes to a wedding. The wedding runs out of wine. Uh, the, the hosts are embarrassed. Jesus' mom, Mary, asked Jesus to save the wedding. Jesus turns water into wine and the wedding saved. But as John would later discover, this wasn't just a random act of kindness. This was the first sign. It was the perfect first sign that would point to the identity of Jesus. After the wedding, Jesus heads down to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Now, Jesus' ministry often found him spending time way up in Galilee in the north, where he grew up, where a good portion of his his, his time is spent, and then he spends a lot of time also down in the holy city of Jerusalem in the south. Now, if you read through the Gospels, you'll know, notice that any time that Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he's at risk. His life is in danger. That's why he spends a little bit of time there, then he heads back to Galilee for a while, where he, he's received much better. And I can imagine that the disciples were probably somewhat on edge any time Jesus said, all right, boys, Let's head off to Jerusalem. Because they, anytime they would go to Jerusalem, Jesus would say some strange things that would really seem to upset the leaders in that area, the officials in that area. And then they all became at risk because they got angry and threw stones and things like that. And so anytime Jesus went there, they knew this, we're going to be in trouble for a little bit. And so when they, we, when they get to Jerusalem, we get this famous story of Jesus getting angry at the money changers in the temple and flipping tables, and he makes a whip. Like if you thought, if you think of Jesus only as that picture that you kind of see on the internet or some, maybe in your grandma's house of Jesus holding a lamb, the soft, gentle Jesus. I mean, this is very in contrast with, with this, this scene that we get where Jesus is actually so angry, he flips tables and he, and he has a whip. Indiana Jones Jesus. And so, but he's, he's angry because, the reason he was angry is because they were making a mockery of his father's house. People would come to the temple and they would bring an unblemished or perfect animal for sacrifice in order to atone for their sins. But there was vendors there that were selling to anybody who didn't have an animal, which that in itself wasn't, wasn't a bad thing. The problem was they were charging and taking advantage of the situation and charging 10 to 15 times the going rate for these animals. Maybe that doesn't make sense in your world because you've never had to do that, but unless you've ever been to the movies... I mean, you think, think about that. I, you, you, I'm sorry, you want me to spend $20 for a medium popcorn and a drink? I think next time I go to Cineplex, I'm flipping some tables and bringing a whip with me. But Jesus' anger came from just seeing how people were, were using God for profit. Jesus, and John tells this story, he, he lays it out, and I, I think he'll never forget that scene in his mind. John 2.23 says, Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to put their trust in him. See, Jesus didn't just tell them, just have, believe or just have faith. Because of the signs, many began to trust in him. While they're there, Jesus has this, this famous conversation with Nicodemus that, where he tells Nicodemus that you need to be born again. If you remember the conversation in the Lost in Translation series that we just completed, you know, that's, that's when this happens right there. 
And then they head back to Galilee, and along the way they pass through Samaria, which was Jewish people usually went, took the longer route around Samaria because Samaritans and Jews just didn't mix very well. They, they, they hated each other. And so while they're cutting through Samaria, Jesus has this conversation with a woman at the well, which is incredibly unusual because he's a Jew. He's a Jewish man, and he's a Jewish rabbi. And Jewish men don't have conversations with Samaritan women. It's so taboo. But Jesus tells her, you come to this water and, and to get, you come to this well to get water, but I offer you water that will quench the thirst of your soul. And so in this moment, he also reveals to the first time anywhere to anyone that he is the son of God. And she runs off, she's excited, and she, she's come face to face with God, and she she tells everyone that she knows. And because of her testimony, many believe in Jesus on that day. Which foreshadows what the future would be like. That many will believe based on the testimony of someone else who came face to face with God. Then he arrives back in Galilee. Back home. And that's where we pick up the story. John four forty three. At the end of the two days, Jesus went on to Galilee. He himself had said that a prophet is not honored in his own hometown, yet the Galileans welcomed him, for they had been in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration and had seen everything he did there. As he traveled through Galilee, he came to Cana, where he had turned water into wine. This is where the first sign occurred. He's back, back to Cana. There was a government official in nearby Capernaum whose son was very sick. Now pause there for a second. It's very interesting because in the, in the first line, Jesus, he shows up at a celebration, a very happy, joyous moment in life. And now he, we see the contrast where he shows up in this very distressing time in life, and was, which, is, which is important to note that, you know, God, a lot of times when we call on God, we call on God when we're in our valleys, when we're in our low place because we need him. But he doesn't just show up in our valleys. He's there in our mountaintops, our peaks, our celebrations as well. So Jesus is back home and a government official from Capernaum appears. Now it says that Capernaum is nearby. That's kind of relative because to walk to Capernaum is an eight-hour walk. If I told you that I want you to walk somewhere for me, uh, it's actually quite nearby, and then you find out it's an eight-hour walk, you're going to say to me, that's not that nearby. But relatively speaking, it was nearby. Being that he's of a higher place in society, it's actually unlikely that he did walk. Because by horse or by chariot, he could probably do it in about two to three hours. Being that he was a government official, he has wealth and he has power. And yet, we all know that money and power can sometimes open doors and get you preferential treatment within certain circles. But when it comes to your health, when it comes to your well-being, there's no amount of money or power that can stop a life-altering diagnosis or sickness. And so this man's sense of security is rocked. His family doesn't have to worry about where their next meal comes from because they, they're wealthy and they have this nice home. They have servants. They, they feel like they're untouchable, except they aren't. None of the safeguards this man has put around him and his family can protect him from losing his son to sickness. And his rank, his money, his power, his ego, they all have to be put to the side because now he's no longer in this moment. He's no longer in the role of government official. He now wears the hat of desperate father, a father 
that feels helpless. If you're a parent, you've been in that situation where your child is sick and you just feel helpless. It doesn't matter who you are in your, in your business or your corporate world. It doesn't matter in that moment. You become desperate parent. And so he racks his brain for, for an answer. Perhaps he's already tried getting the best medical care he could get, but nothing seems to work. And then it dawns on him. He realizes that Jesus is back in Galilee. At least he's heard the rumors that he is. And in the Gospels of Luke and Matthew, they mention that Jesus at one point had been in Capernaum and done healings and miracles. So it's likely that he's heard the rumors of Jesus. He's heard the stories of Jesus, that the things that this rabbi from Nazareth has done. And he, and he dawns on him and he's desperate. Verse 47, when he heard that Jesus had come to Judea, to Galilee, he went and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum to heal his son who was about to die. So he travels this eight hours or the three-hour ride, and he begs Jesus to come. I just, Jesus, I just need you to come. Heal my son. Now, the word used here for begged actually means in its original, not just begged, but begged over and over and over and over, you know, like a toddler asking for a cookie. It wasn't a demand, it was, but it wasn't also a simple ask of Jesus. He begs, he begs, please, Jesus. Now, maybe when he set out on his journey, maybe his first thought was, I'm going to use my influence to bring Jesus back. Maybe I can persuade Jesus with my position in society, him just being a traveling rabbi, me being a government official. And maybe that's why he came on the trip and just didn't send his servants go get Jesus, because he realized, I'm going to need to flex my position, my power. But now that he's face to face with this rabbi from Nazareth, he lays down his position. He lays down his pride. He lays down his worldview. He lays down his theology, and he desperately pleads for Jesus to come with him. Now, normally this would have been very embarrassing. He would never let common folks see him stoop so low. But when the life of one of the people that you love is at stake, pride just goes out the window. Some of you have been there. You've been there. Maybe the first time you spoke to God was in a place of desperation. It was like, God, if you'll just... I'll allow my son or my daughter to make it. Or if you'll just allow me to get through this, if you'll just heal my spouse, I'll do whatever. I'll go to church. I'll, I'll read your Bible. Whatever I need to do, God, I'll, I will do. And so in response to the man's cry, Jesus says this, which is, seems to be out of place. He says, will you never believe in me unless you see miraculous signs and wonders? And his response isn't just for the government official. In fact, he recognizes that there's a crowd forming, that there's people all around, a lot of Jewish people. And there are many people listening in. And so he points out what he sees to be obvious. You won't believe unless you see signs and miracles, which sounds like he's scolding them. But he's trying to make a point. He knows that seeing is believing. That's, that's the purpose of the signs that he's performed, to show them who he was, to point them to the one who sent him. But the Jewish people were not content with just seeing something. They wanted more, more signs, more signs, Jesus. In contrast, he thinks back to the Samaritan woman who had revealed, who he had revealed who he was to her, and that in itself was enough for her 
that he heard and that, that she told her testimony. And people that came, heard her testimony, believed. But the Jewish people who knew the prophecies of the Messiah were not content even with what they saw. And so while Jesus is making his point, the nobleman or the government official, he's getting antsy. He's not sure quite what he's talking about. He's okay, okay. The official pleaded, Lord, please, just come now before my little boy dies. I don't know what you're, I don't know why you're talking to everyone else. I'm like, please just come before he dies. He's a desperate father. He's unconcerned that he's lowered himself below Jesus despite the fact that he would rank higher socially. He's unconcerned what it looks like in front of a bunch of strangers and his own men. They're watching the, the person that, they, that they, they report to just grovel at this rabbi's feet. But he just needs Jesus to come, come back with me. Come back with me. And based on the other stories of others, based on what other people have told him, this man may or may not be the son of God, but he's, he's desperate and he recognizes his need. He recognizes how powerful he is without this touch from God. And for, so for this man, there are two options. Either Jesus comes back with me, or he doesn't. Either Jesus comes to Capernaum with me, and my son gets healed if the rumors are true, that he truly does have the divine power to heal, or option two, Jesus refuses to come. My son dies. And I imagine Jesus smiles in this moment. Because there's a third option. Jesus asked the government official to do what Jesus has been asking us to do ever since. He asked the official to trust him based on the testimony of other people. He asked him to entrust the life of his son to the stories of others and the testimony of others, that he is who they believe him to be. Verse 50, Jesus told him, go back home. Now the Greek, here, Greek word here for go translates different than on your marks, get set, go. You know, the, the, the urgency that we would expect if we were rushing to the side of a dying loved one. It's not urgent, it, go from the start line. It's more of a go. Go about your business. Go on. You don't need to hurry. And you definitely don't need to worry. And I'm not coming with you. He says, go. Go back home. Your son will live. See, now it's easy for us as an outside, when you're reading through this on the outside, and you kind of know, you know how a lot of these stories end with Jesus, to have the confidence that all will be well. It's just like, okay, buddy, just go. He'll, he'll take care of it. But put yourself in the shoes of this man. I mean, he's, he's come to Jesus based on the rumors and stories from others. They've told him, like, this man, this rabbi, he's the real deal. And now he humbles himself. He's risked a lot. He's left his wife. He's left his family behind to plead with this man. He may have given up the last moments that he has with his dying son. His son may die hours after he leaves and he will not have that time back again. He's humbled himself and put his hope in the testimony of other people. And he's seen nothing to this point to convince him. But the alternative is certain death for his son. 
And as Jesus is writing this, or John is writing this, he realizes in this moment the brilliance. This isn't just a random miracle or a, or a great story to tell. It's a sign. It's a sign that will ring for generations. In writing this, John realizes that Jesus knew this story would resonate with people for thousands of years because you and I face the same dilemma that this man does. In fact, it's a snapshot of our lives. We all have to make a decision. We all have to humble ourselves and put our hope in the testimony of others, perhaps even before we physically see anything that convinces us. And then the alternative, if we don't, is certain death. Jesus is asking you to put your faith in him based on the testimony of others that had seen him and had touched him, and then go about our day with our unanswered prayers, having faith, having confidence that he is who he claimed to be, and that there is something to this man. And in the end, trust that God's perfect will will be done. And like we said at the start, you know people like this who carry unanswered prayers with them daily. They've been dealing with a disease for years, and yet they go on throughout their day with confidence and joy that Jesus is who Jesus says he is. Or out of the blue, they're abandoned by that person who made a commitment till death do us part. And now they're all alone, and yet they go on with a confidence and a joy that Jesus is who he claimed to be. People that when you look at their circumstances, you don't know if you would handle it the same way. You hope you would. And if you know someone like this, sometimes that's intimidating, but it's always inspiring. Maybe today you're carrying unanswered prayer. You've been praying the same prayer for years, and you kind of feel like a broken record coming before God. And every once in a while, if you, if you will admit it, you question if God really hears you yet you remain faithful. And do you know who's watching your faithfulness? No. You don't. Do you know what God's doing in the lives of people around you because of your faithfulness? No. And do you know who may be minutes or days or weeks or years from placing their trust and faith in Jesus because of you? See, this story is a snapshot of our lives lived out in a day. And so the government official, he's just staring back at Jesus as Jesus has said, go, your son will be fine. Because option A isn't happening. Jesus isn't coming with them. Option B isn't happening either. It's not like Jesus just abandoned him and said, go, I'm not going to help you. He's saying, go home. There's no need to worry. Trust in option C. So he makes a decision. He makes a decision that people for 2,000 years have been making. He decides to put his trust in Jesus and then live like Jesus, what he said was true. Even though there's no physical evidence yet. And it says, and the man believed what Jesus said and started home. He didn't just say, I believe you, Jesus. 
He headed home as if he believed what Jesus said was true. Can you imagine? Put yourself in his shoes again. Can you imagine leaving the one person, your last hope, the only person that you know could save your son? Because he truly believed. Can you imagine? I mean, some of you can. I mean, if I heard your story, there's many of you that have been living this way for years. Because he walked by faith and not by sight. Verse 51. While the man was on his way, some of his servants met him with the news that his son was alive and well. He asked them when the boy had begun to get better, and they replied, Yesterday afternoon at one o'clock, his fever suddenly disappeared. Then the father realized that was the very time that Jesus told him, your son will live. A couple weeks ago, I told you a story of my daughter, Janelle. She had her appendix rupture and we had to have her rushed in to have emergency surgery when she was about eight years old. And it was scary because there was a moment where we weren't sure whether she was going to pull through or that we might lose her. But her surgery was, was, was incredibly successful. However, what I didn't tell you was that for the next week during her recovery, my wife Jen and I, we spent the next, next week by her bedside. We wouldn't leave her. And if, if you know Janelle, Janelle is full of joy and life. She's, she's always upbeat, it seems. But for the next week, she was not herself. It was, it was like all personality had been sucked right out of her. And she looked like my little girl, but she didn't act like it at all. Not what I knew of her. And her release was, from the hospital was dependent upon her recovering and getting some life back into her. And I remember the day we saw signs of life. It was almost like she suddenly, like that, got her personality back. And the joy and life that entered her body it was so sudden. And I remember when it was. It was a Sunday morning. And the reason I remember it was a Sunday morning is because we reported back to our church. We let them know of the great news so that she all of a sudden is, is, has turned the corner and everything looks great now. And one of the other pastors on staff, they kind of relayed to me that that Sunday morning that she came back to, came back to herself, they began the service in prayer for her. And Jen and I, we had the the same moment that man had. We realized that approximately the same moment, actually right to the minute, that the church was united in prayer, praying for her, that Janelle snapped out of her fog. This man has that same moment. He likely has a tear in his eye. As he recalls the conversation, then he realizes that the same moment Jesus said that his boy would be fine, the fever broke. And as he arrives home, his wife likely comes running out to tell him of this incredible miracle. But she notices that he doesn't seem that surprised. In fact, he just smiles. And it says, and he and his entire household believed in Jesus. See, they had seen with their own eyes this sign. You've heard the saying, I'll believe it when I see it. For this man, he saw it when he believed it. He saw it after he believed the testimony of other people. He saw it when he placed his complete trust in Jesus that those that these people who he, they said he was, he was. Verse 54. 
This was the second miraculous sign Jesus did in Galilee after coming from Judea. See, in this story, we see someone who walked by faith. If you grew up in church for any length of time, you've heard this term a lot, walking by faith. But walking by faith is not walking by hope. Walking by faith is not walking by wishful thinking. We just saw what it means to walk by faith. It means to walk with the confidence, not hope, walk with the confidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be every single day that what he said will come true. That means when you put your trust in Jesus, you're unconditionally loved. It doesn't matter what you did in your past. What he said is you are unconditionally loved. And when you repent for your sin from your past, it's gone. You don't have to dig it up. You don't have to carry shame. You don't have to carry guilt with you any longer. Because when you do, when you continue to carry that guilt of something that he's already forgiven you for, it says that you don't actually believe that what he said would come true would come true. And so Jesus would say to you, go. Go about your day. Go about your day with confidence that I am who I said I am. Don't look back. Let's pray. Lord, you say that in your word that blessed are those that don't need to see, that put their faith in the testimony of others that put their faith in what the Holy Spirit reveals to them. And God, as much as it's important that we, uh, we, we have evidence, and there's so much ample evidence, God, and you've revealed yourself to us in so many ways that if we are not arrogant, if we are not have willful blindness, as Francis Collins said, if we choose to look for the evidence, the evidence is there. But God, may we, once we have that evidence in front of us, once we, once we have reason to believe God, may we call on your Holy Spirit to show us what we need to see and then walk by faith. Take a step of faith. And, and, and despite our circumstances, despite what happens around us, God, may we walk and, and, and go like you are who you say you are. Lord, we love you. May you continue to grow our faith. May you continue to hear our prayers. And may you continue to walk with us daily. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.